Book Thirteen, Chapters One through Eleven of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Thirteen, Chapter One. Having disposed of the very difficult questions concerning the origin of our world and the beginning of the human race, the natural order requires that we now discuss the fall of the first man, we may say, of the first men, and of the origin and propagation of human death. For God had not made man like the angels, in such a condition that even though they had sinned, they could none the more die. He had so made them that if they discharged the obligations of obedience, an angelic immortality and a blessed eternity might ensue without the intervention of death. But if they disobeyed, death should be visited on them with just sentence, which too has been spoken to in the preceding book. Chapter 2 But I see I must speak a little more carefully of the nature of death. For although the human soul is truly affirmed to be immortal, yet it also has a certain death of its own. For it is therefore called immortal, because, in a sense, it does not cease to live and to feel, while the body is called mortal, because it can be forsaken of all life, and cannot by itself live at all. The death, then, of the soul takes place when God forsakes it, as the death of the body when the soul forsakes it. Therefore the death of both, that is, of the whole man, occurs when the soul, forsaken by God, forsakes the body. For in this case neither is God the life of the soul, nor the soul the life of the body. And this death of the whole man is followed by that which, on the authority of the divine oracles, we call the second death. This the Saviour referred to when he said, Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And since this does not happen before the soul is so joined to its body that they cannot be separated at all, it may be matter of wonder how the body can be said to be killed by that death in which it is not forsaken by the soul, but, being animated and rendered sensitive by it, is tormented. For in that penal and everlasting punishment, of which in its own place we are to speak more at large, the soul is justly said to die, because it does not live in connection with God. But how can we say that the body is dead, seeing that it lives by the soul? For it could not otherwise feel the bodily torments which are to follow the resurrection. Is it because life of every kind is good, and pain and evil, that we decline to say that that body lives, in which the soul is the cause, not of life, but of pain? The soul, then, lives by God when it lives well, for it cannot live well unless by God working in it what is good. And the body lives by the soul when the soul lives in the body, whether itself be living by God or no. For the wicked man's life in the body is a life not of the soul, but of the body, which even dead souls, that is, souls forsaken of God, can confer upon bodies, how little soever of their own proper life, by which they are immortal, they retain. But in the last damnation, though man does not cease to feel, yet because this feeling of his is neither sweet with pleasure nor wholesome with repose, but painfully penal, it is not without reason called death rather than life. And it is called the second death, because it follows the first, which sunders the two cohering essences, whether these be God and the soul, or the soul and the body. Of the first and bodily death, then, we may say that to the good it is good, and evil to the evil. 
but doubtless the second, as it happens to none of the good, so it can be good for none. CHAPTER Three. But a question not to be shirked arises, whether in very truth death, which separates soul and body, is good to the good. For if it be, how has it come to pass that such a thing should be the punishment of sin? For the first men would not have suffered death had they not sinned. How then can that be good to the good which could not have happened except to the evil? Then again, if it could only happen to the evil, to the good it ought not to be good, but non-existent. For why should there be any punishment where there is nothing to punish? Wherefore we must say that the first men were indeed so created, that if they had not sinned, they would not have experienced any kind of death, but that, having become sinners, they were so punished with death, that whatsoever sprang from their stock should also be punished with the same death for nothing else could be born of them than that which they themselves had been their nature was deteriorated in proportion to the greatness of the condemnation of their sin so that what existed as punishment in those who first sinned became a natural consequence in their children for man is not produced by man as he was from the dust for dust was the material out of which man was made man is the parent by whom man is begotten wherefore earth and flesh are not the same thing though flesh be made of earth but as man the parent is such is man the offspring in the first man therefore there existed the whole human nature which was to be transmitted by the woman to posterity when that conjugal union received the divine sentence of its own condemnation and what man was made not when created but when he sinned and was punished this he propagated so far as the origin of sin and death are concerned for neither by sin nor its punishment was he himself reduced to that infantine and helpless infirmity of body and mind which we see in children for god ordained that infants should begin the world as the young of beasts begin it since their parents had fallen to the level of the beasts in the fashion of their life and of their death as it is written man when he was in honour understood not he became like the beasts that have no understanding nay more infants we see are even feebler in the use and movements of their limbs and more infirm to choose and refuse than the most tender offspring of other animals as if the force that dwells in human nature were destined to surpass all other living things so much the more eminently as its energy has been longer restrained and the time of its exercise delayed just as an arrow flies the higher the further back it has been drawn to this infantine imbecility the first man did not fall by his lawless presumption and just sentence but human nature was in his person vitiated and altered to such an extent that he suffered in his members the warring of disobedient lust and became subject to the necessity of dying and what he himself had become by sin and punishment such he generated those whom he begot that is to say subject to sin and death and if infants are delivered from this bondage of sin by the Redeemer's grace, they can suffer only this death which separates soul and body, but being redeemed from the obligation of sin, they do not pass to that second endless and penal death. CHAPTER four. 
If, moreover, any one is solicitous about this point, how, if death be the very punishment of sin, they whose guilt is cancelled by grace do yet suffer death, this difficulty has already been handled and solved in our other work which we have written on the baptism of infants. There it was said that the parting of soul and body was left, though its connection with sin was removed, for this reason, that if the immortality of the body followed immediately upon the sacrament of regeneration, faith itself would be thereby enervated. For faith is then only faith when it waits in hope for what is not yet seen in substance. And by the vigor and conflict of faith, at least in times past, was the fear of death overcome. Especially was this conspicuous in the holy martyrs, who could have had no victory, no glory, to whom there could not even have been any conflict, if, after the labor of regeneration, saints could not suffer bodily death. Who would not, then, in company with the infants presented for baptism, run to the grace of Christ, so that he might not be dismissed from the body? And thus faith would not be tested with an unseen reward, and so would not even be faith, seeking and receiving an immediate recompense of its works. But now, by the greater and more admirable grace of the Saviour, the punishment of sin is turned to the service of righteousness. For then it was proclaimed to man, If thou sinnest, thou shalt die. Now it is said to the martyr, Die that thou sin not. Then it was said, If ye transgress the commandments, ye shall die. Now it is said, If ye decline death, ye transgress the commandment. That which was formerly set as an object of terror, that men might not sin, is now to be undergone if we would not sin. Thus, by the unutterable mercy of God, even the very punishment of wickedness has become the armor of virtue, and the penalty of the sinner becomes the reward of the righteous. For then death was incurred by sinning, now righteousness is fulfilled by dying. In the case of the holy martyrs it is so, for to them the persecutor proposes the alternative, apostasy or death. For the righteous prefer by believing to suffer what the first transgressors suffered by not believing. For unless they had sinned they would not have died, but the martyrs sin if they do not die. The one died because they sinned, the others do not sin because they die. By the guilt of the first, punishment was incurred. By the punishment of the second, guilt is prevented. Not that death, which was before an evil, has become something good, but only that God has granted to faith this grace, that death, which is the admitted opposite to life, should become the instrument by which life is reached. CHAPTER five. The Apostle, wishing to show how hurtful a thing sin is when grace does not aid us, has not hesitated to say that the strength of sin is that very law by which sin is prohibited. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Most certainly true, for prohibition increases the desire of illicit action if righteousness is not so loved that the desire of sin is conquered by that love. But unless divine grace aid us, we cannot love nor delight in true righteousness. But lest the law should be thought to be an evil, since it is called the strength of sin, the apostle, when treating a similar question in another place, says, The law indeed is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is holy made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Exceeding, he says, because the transgression is more heinous, when through the increasing lust of sin the law itself also is despised. 
Why have we thought it worth while to mention this? For this reason, because, as the law is not an evil when it increases the lust of those who sin, so neither is death a good thing when it increases the glory of those who suffer it, since either the former is abandoned wickedly, and makes transgressors, or the latter is embraced for the truth's sake, and makes martyrs. And thus the law is indeed good because it is prohibition of sin, and death is evil because it is the wages of sin. But as wicked men make an evil use not only of evil, but also of good things, so the righteous make a good use not only of good, but also of evil things. Whence it comes to pass that the wicked make an ill use of the law, though the law is good, and that the good die well, though death is an evil. CHAPTER six. Wherefore, as regards bodily death, that is, the separation of the soul from the body, it is good unto none while it is being endured by those whom we say are in the article of death. For the very violence with which body and soul are wrenched asunder, which in the living have been conjoined and closely intertwined, brings with it a harsh experience, jarring horridly on nature so long as it continues, till there comes a total loss of sensation, which arose from the very interpenetration of spirit and flesh. And all this anguish is sometimes forestalled by one stroke of the body or sudden flitting of the soul, the swiftness of which prevents it from being felt. But whatever that may be in the dying, which with violently painful sensation robs of all sensation, yet, when it is piously and faithfully borne, it increases the merit of patience, but does not make the name of punishment inapplicable. Death, proceeding by ordinary generation from the first man, is the punishment of all who are born of him, yet, if it be endured for righteousness' sake, it becomes the glory of those who are born again. And though death be the award of sin, it sometimes secures that nothing be awarded to sin. CHAPTER seven. For whatever unbaptized persons die confessing Christ, this confession is of the same efficacy for the remission of sins as if they were washed in the sacred font of baptism. For he who said, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, made also an exception in their favor, in that other sentence where he no less absolutely said, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. And in another place, Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And this explains the verse, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. For what is more precious than a death by which a man's sins are all forgiven, and his merits increased an hundredfold? For those who have been baptized when they could no longer escape death, and have departed this life with all their sins blotted out, have not equal merit with those who did not defer death, though it was in their power to do so, but preferred to end their life by confessing Christ, rather than by denying him to secure an opportunity of baptism. And even had they denied him under pressure of the fear of death, this too would have been forgiven them in that baptism, in which was remitted even the enormous wickedness of those who had slain Christ. But how abundant in these men must have been the grace of the Spirit, who breathes where he listeth, seeing that they so dearly loved Christ as to be unable to deny him, even in so sore an emergency, and with so sure a hope of pardon." Precious, therefore, is the death of the saints, to whom the grace of Christ has been applied with such gracious effects, that they do not hesitate to meet death themselves, if so be that they might meet him. 
and precious is it also because it is proved that what was originally ordained for the punishment of the sinner has been used for the production of a richer harvest of righteousness but not on this account should we look upon death as a good thing for it is diverted to such useful purposes not by any virtue of its own but by the divine interference death was originally proposed as an object of dread that sin might not be committed now it must be undergone that sin may not be committed or if committed be remitted and the award of righteousness bestowed on him whose victory has earned it chapter eight for if we look at the matter a little more carefully we shall see that even when a man dies faithfully and laudably for the truth's sake it is still death he is avoiding for he submits to some part of death for the very purpose of avoiding the whole and the second and eternal death over and above he submits to the separation of soul and body lest the soul be separated both from god and from the body and so the whole first death be completed and the second death receive him everlastingly wherefore death is indeed as i said good to none while it is being actually suffered and while it is subduing the dying to its power but it is meritoriously endured for the sake of retaining or winning what is good and regarding what happens after death it is no absurdity to say that death is good to the good and evil to the evil for the disembodied spirits of the just are at rest but those of the wicked suffer punishment till their bodies rise again those of the just to life everlasting and of the others to death eternal which is called the second death chapter nine the point of time in which the souls of the good and evil are separated from the body are we to say it is after death or in death rather if it is after death then it is not death which is good or evil since death is done with and past but it is the life which the soul has now entered on death was an evil when it was present that is to say when it was being suffered by the dying for to them it brought with it a severe and grievous experience which the good make a good use of but when death is past how can that which no longer is be either good or evil still further if we examine the matter more closely we shall see that even that sore and grievous pain which the dying experience is not death itself for so long as they have any sensation they are certainly still alive and if still alive must rather be said to be in a state previous to death than in death for when death actually comes it robs us of all bodily sensation which while death is only approaching is painful and thus it is difficult to explain how we speak of those who are not yet dead but are agonized in their last and mortal extremity as being in the article of death yet what else can we call them than dying persons for when death which was imminent shall have actually come we can no longer call them dying but dead no one therefore is dying unless living since even he who is in the last extremity of life and as we say giving up the ghost yet lives the same person is therefore at once dying and living but drawing near to death departing from life yet in life because his spirit yet abides in the body not yet in death because not yet has his spirit forsaken the body but if when it is forsaken it the man is not even then in death but after death who shall say when he is in death on the one hand no one can be called dying if a man cannot be dying and living at the same time and as long as the soul is in the body we cannot deny that he is living on the other hand if the man who is approaching death be rather called dying i know not who is living chapter ten 
For no sooner do we begin to live in this dying body than we begin to move ceaselessly towards death. For in the whole course of this life, if life we must call it, its mutability tends towards death. Certainly there is no one who is not nearer it this year than last year, and to-morrow than to-day, and to-day than yesterday, and a short while hence than now, and now than a short while ago. For whatever time we live is deducted from our whole term of life, and that which remains is daily becoming less and less, so that our whole life is nothing but a race towards death, in which no one is allowed to stand still for a little space, or to go somewhat more slowly, but all are driven forwards with an impartial movement, and with equal rapidity. For he whose life is short spends a day no more swiftly than he whose life is longer. But while the equal moments are impartially snatched from both, the one has a nearer and the other a more remote goal to reach with this their equal speed. It is one thing to make a longer journey, and another to walk more slowly. He, therefore, who spends longer time on his way to death, does not proceed at a more leisurely pace, but goes over more ground. Further, if every man begins to die, that is, is in death, as soon as death has begun to show itself in him, by taking away life to it, for when life is all taken away, the man will be then not in death, but after death, then he begins to die so soon as he begins to live. For what else is going on in all his days, hours, and moments, until this slow-working death is fully consummated? And then comes the time after death, instead of that in which life was being withdrawn, in which we called being in death. Man, then, is never in life from the moment he dwells in this dying rather than living body, if at least he cannot be in life and death at once. Or rather shall we say he is in both, in life, namely, which he lives till all is consumed, but in death also which he dies as his life is consumed. For if he is not in life, what is it which is consumed till all be gone? And if he is not in death, what is this consumption itself? For when the whole of life has been consumed, the expression after death would be meaningless had that consumption not been death. And if, when it has all been consumed, a man is not in death, but after death, when is he in death, unless when life is being consumed away? CHAPTER eleven. But if it be absurd to say that a man is in death before he reaches death, for to what is his course running as he passes through life, if already he is in death, and if it outrage common usage to speak of a man being at once alive and dead, as much as it does so to speak of him as at once asleep and awake, it remains to be asked when a man is dying. For before death comes he is not dying but living, and when death has come he is not dying but dead. The one is before, the other after death. When, then, is he in death, so that we can say he is dying? For as there are three times before death, in death, after death, so there are three states corresponding, living, dying, dead. And it is very hard to define when a man is in death or dying, when he is neither living, which is before death, nor dead, which is after death, but dying, which is in death. For so long as the soul is in the body, especially if consciousness remain, the man certainly lives, for body and soul constitute the man. And thus, before death, he cannot be said to be in death, but when, on the other hand, the soul has departed, and all bodily sensation is extinct, death is past, and the man is dead. Between these two states the dying condition finds no place, for if a man yet lives, death has not arrived, if he has ceased to live, death is past. Never, then, is he dying, that is, comprehended in the state of death. 
so also in the passing of time you try to lay your finger on the present and cannot find it because the present occupies no space but is only the transition of time from the future to the past must we then conclude that there is thus no death of the body at all for if there is where is it since it is in no one and no one can be in it since indeed if there is yet life death is not yet for this state is before death not in death and if life is already ceased death is not present for this state is after death not in death on the other hand if there is no death before or after what do we mean when we say after death or before death this is a foolish way of speaking if there is no death and would that we had lived so well in paradise that in very truth there were now no death but not only does it now exist but so grievous a thing is it that no skill is sufficient either to explain it or to escape it let us then speak in the customary way no man ought to speak otherwise and let us call the time before death come before death as it is written praise no man before his death and when it has happened let us say that after death this or that took place and of the present time let us speak as best we can as when we say he when dying made his will and left this or that to such and such persons though of course he could not do so unless he were living and did this rather before death than in death and let us use the same phraseology as scripture uses for it makes no scruple of saying that the dead are not after but in death so that verse for in death there is no remembrance of thee for until the resurrection men are justly said to be in death as every one is said to be in sleep till he awakes however though we can say of persons in sleep that they are sleeping we cannot speak in this way of the dead and say they are dying for so far as regards the death of the body of which we are now speaking one cannot say that those who are already separated from their bodies continue dying but this you see is just what i was saying that no words can explain how either the dying are said to live or how the dead are said even after death to be in death for how can they be after death if they be in death especially when we do not even call them dying as we call those in sleep sleeping and those in languor languishing and those in grief grieving and those in life living and yet the dead until they rise again are said to be in death but cannot be called dying and therefore i think it has not unsuitably nor inappropriately come to pass though not by the intention of man yet perhaps with divine purpose that this latin word moritur cannot be declined by the grammarians according to the rule followed by similar words for oritur gives the form ortus est for the perfect and all similar verbs form this tense from their perfect participles but if we ask the perfect of moritur we get the regular answer mortuus est with a double u for thus mortuus is pronounced like fatuus arduus conspicuus and similar words which are not perfect participles but adjectives and are declined without regard to tense but mortuus though in form an adjective is used as perfect participle as if that were to be declined which cannot be declined and thus it has suitably come to pass that as the thing itself cannot in point of fact be declined so neither can the word significant of the act be declined yet by the aid of our redeemer's grace we may manage at least to decline the second for that is more grievous still and indeed of all evils the worst since it consists not in the separation of soul and body but in the uniting of both in death eternal and there in striking contrast to our present conditions men will not be before or after death but always in death 
and thus never living, never dead, but endlessly dying. And never can a man be more disastrously in death than when death itself shall be deathless. End of Book 13, Chapters 1-11 through 11. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org